0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Thanks very much to the the hosts and the organisers of this conference. It's really uh, delightful to be here. And uh, my compliments to everybody involved in the Kaldur Center uh, for, first for the insight that's led to the formation of the initiative and for what you've been able to achieve in a relatively short time in terms of building a really strong and necessary institution. It's really impressive, uh, so great to be here. The title of my talk today is Global Policy Shopping and Bad Diaspora Practices. And my overall aim is to cast a critical eye on the process of sharing policy best practices that's been in the background to the Global Compacts that we're focusing on today. I'm gonna look specifically at policy models and best practices surrounding engaging diasporas, which have been very prominent in the development-focused discussions that have helped bring us to this point in uh, global governance discussions around migration, and which lie behind the frequent mentions of diasporas in the discussion documents surrounding uh, the compacts, I've been following these diaspora engagement policies for a number of years, including through something called the Oxford Diasporas Program, a five-year research project funded by the Leverhulme uh, Trust at the University of Oxford that finished in 2016. And as part of my uh, as my part of the project, uh, we collected uh, quantitative data on all states. And their diaspora engagement uh, efforts across the UN system going back to the 1980s and in some cases before. And we also collected interviews um, and formal statements from policymakers, uh, senior politicians, senior civil servants, and so forth in 60 countries that were uh, deeply interested in um, engaging their diasporas. Uh, and today I'm going to talk a little bit about how these policies towards diasporas, diaspora engagement policies have proliferated globally and been traded and exchanged around the world through a kind of global policy shopping. And I think the default assumption that we have about this kind of market process of, of buying and selling uh, policies leads to the best policies rising to the top and achieving implementation and being adopted by states. Uh, but through this research, one of the interesting things that I've found is that it has also led this process of global policy shopping, has led to the dissemination of bad practices, which actually risk doing harm. And I'm gonna talk a bit about that today. <laughs> so the starting point for many of us who are interested in the uh, global compact on migration uh, is the discussion about global migration governance more broadly. And um, as Alex and Fiona both alluded to, uh, since the 1990s at least, various people and organisations have been referring to migration as the missing regime, because we have a WTO and an IMF for you know, trade and finance respectively, but nothing analogous for migration. And the agenda to build a migration regime took uh, shape uh, when Kofi Annan uh, set up a global commission on international migration, which eventually recommended the establishment of a global migration facility, essentially a global migration organisation. This was a non-starter at the time, uh, in the early uh, in the early noughties, uh, because prominent destination states didn't want to be dictated their migration policies by an international organisation, but also because there were a number of international organisations who were uh, uh, had overlapping responsibilities in the migration area, as Beth uh, alluded to this morning. Um, So it wasn't clear which one of them could become an embryo for such a facility. So the question at that time, back in the early noughties, became how can we build the international cooperation around migration that everybody wants without the kind of top-down, centralised global governance framework that at that stage nobody wanted? Uh, And the answer that Anand's administration hit upon at that time was a kind of softly, softly state-led, decentralised approach that involved informal state-led forums like the Global Forum on Migration and Development where states could start talking to each other, building shared identity and critically sharing best practices on how to manage migration cooperatively. And when Kofi Annan announced this approach in 2006 at the first General Assembly uh, high-level dialogue on migration and development, he explicitly mentioned uh, engaging diasporas as one of these kinds of best practices that states should be sharing in order to enhance the developmental impact uh, of migration. And the idea was that by engaging diasporas, uh, origin and destination states could share responsibility for migration and migrants, both in terms of looking out for their welfare, in terms of extraordinary forms of consular assistance, for example, and also in terms of sharing the benefits of migration uh, through migrants' resources, you know, uh, channeling migrants' resources through remittances uh, and so forth in ways that combated brain drain. So, engaging diasporas became a way of sharing responsibility for migration management on a peer-to-peer, state-to-state basis, without the need for what was then seen as a, an overly top-down approach of having a world migration organisation bossing people around. And it was pronouncements like this that, uh, that Kofi Annan made that, if you like, made the market for diaspora engagement policies globally. And the numbers suggest that uh, Anand's encouragement and everything that followed it, which I'll talk about, has had some effect, so this map shows Uh, Countries that have some kind of formal diaspora institution, uh, a government uh, ministry dedicated to immigrants and their descendants in the diaspora. In 1980, there was just a handful of states that had these kinds of formal offices, but since then they've proliferated incredibly rapidly, and now uh, more than half of all United Nations member states has some kind of formal office for the diaspora. They have a range of functions, from managing labour export to safeguarding the welfare of migrants to facilitating remittances and networking with affluent and influential uh, citizens abroad in ways that uh, help them to to, to kind of act as informal ambassadors in uh, relations between origin and destination countries. Uh, Prior to 1990, most of these uh, diaspora institutions were government departments, but as you can see at the bottom there, Uh, The the last trend line is full ministries dedicated to the diaspora, so there are about 30 of those in existence now. So it's a growing organisational field, both in terms of the number of states involved and the number of uh, organisations involved, but also in terms of their political importance to particular states and to wider political and policy processes. These are theoretically surprising and interesting um, developments, I think, because these kinds of institutions project... Domestic policies beyond territorial borders, in ways that uh, seem to violate some of the territorial uh, underpinnings of the modern international system, they potentially interfere in the domestic affairs of other states. They potentially interfere with the freedom of exit of migrants who may want to sever ties with a the homeland. They potentially uh, give influence over lawmaking to people who live abroad and aren't subject to the resulting laws. And yet. They're being given a platform uh, and being called best practices by the likes of Kofi Annan uh, and others. So it's quite counterintuitive that this extraordinary proliferation is happening and uh, it's a good time to think about how this has happened and whether or not it's a good thing. Uh, and that's what I'll be doing. So first, how does it happened? One way these policies have proliferated is through direct trade and exchange amongst uh, states or groups of states who essentially copy each other's policies. Maybe we can think of that as policy consumption. And one of the ways that I got at that was by asking my interviewees uh, where they'd got the idea of engaging the diaspora if they're a politician or a, or a senior civil servant who had promoted it. And one of the first things I noticed was that all the states were copycatting. They were all copying each other. Everybody was citing each other as, example of, as an example of best practices. So a lot of countries mentioned India, the Philippines, and Mexico. Uh, and Ireland as models. A senior Ethiopian official says to me, we travelled to a number of countries, including the Philippines, I think India, and I'm trying to adapt and benchmark those to our situation. Uh, Similarly, a former senior official from Bangladesh uh, told me similar things. People like myself have been urging the government to do more to look at what India, the Philippines, and various other countries have been able to do in terms of engaging the diaspora. So the Philippines has cropped up already twice in other countries as an example of best practices. So I asked the cabinet secretary who's responsible for this area in uh, the Philippines, Imelda Nicholas, uh, where have you been getting your ideas about uh, engaging the diaspora? And she says, well, it's a combination of ideas from the outside, India, Israel, and of course, Ireland. (laughs) The Philippines mentions Ireland, so I asked the director of the Irish Abroad Unit, and he says, well, obviously, we look at what Israel are doing, we're looking at what India are doing, what Mexico are doing, and I suppose it's more an element of the sharing and the collaboration to develop best practice. Everyone's mentioning India. So I go to the person who set up the ministry for Overseas Indian Indian Affairs, what's influenced him. And he says, well, the way Israel, the Jewish community, has mobilized support for Israel. So I go to the senior Israeli official. And he basically says, well, we're impressed by Mexico and the Philippines. But Hang on, the Philippines has already said they're copying Israel. What about Mexico? Well, it turns out Mexico's also been copying the Israelis. So it's not just state A is copying state B who's copying state C in a, in a kind of a chain. It's that states are copying each other recursively uh, and using this notion of best practices to leverage each other's credibility in order to innovate and actually create new institutional structures, giving the, them the kind of legitimacy of the best practice. They worked somewhere else, so they will work here. And we can think of these as uh, benchmarking loops, sometimes it happens directly like this, uh, Israel's copying the Philippines and Mexico, while Philippines and Mexico are copying Israel. Uh, sometimes it happens like that, when Israel copies the Philippines, which copies Ireland, which then copies Israel, or even more indirectly, when Israel copies the Philippines, which copies Ireland, which copies Mexico, which copies Israel. So, (laughs) everybody's copying everybody. When you think about benchmarking loops, and the point about benchmarking loops is that they facilitate both policy convergence and policy divergence. Uh, And I think the one one thing about how this happens is that they provide cover for innovation, as I just alluded to. Actors can say, what we're doing is inspired by this model. We're following best practices. In actual fact, what they're doing is something completely new and different. Um, So the things that often share the same rationale and justification as each other are actually quite different in different places. Uh, And that should, I think, uh, in itself make us look a little askance at the notion of best practices, the notion that these are sort of conforming to some kind of standard. It's also important to uh, highlight that this process of policy consumption has been brokered by a whole industry of consultants and professionals that's emerged to make money from coaching states how to engage their diasporas in line with international recommendations. I think these are, in a sense, the most important global policy shops, the think tanks, the consultancies, the fledgling international organisations, where states can essentially buy migration policies off the shelf and implement them in response to political pressure over migration. And their products are certainly doing very well. For example, I spoke again to the the head of of a diaspora institution uh, who asked not to be named in connection with this quote, and he says... In some ways, our consultant is the kind of theologian, you know. We're out there, with the parish priests, we're actually doing this. Our consultant is the whole time trying to work out the philosophical framework for all of this diaspora engagement. Clearly, he's not a theologian. He's a consultant who's making money from selling a particular type of policy model. But this notion of best practices shrouds his particular interests in a kind of moral authority which makes states more likely to adopt those recommendations, and that aura of legitimacy also comes directly from the involvement of regional and other international organisations like the European Union, who are in, some, in a sense kind of wholesalers of these best practices and policy models. For example, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, the EU issued a series of quite strong recommendations actually for member states to engage their diasporas, like the one here which impatiently reiterates earlier calls uh, for states to engage their diasporas in a more institutionalised manner. You can imagine why the European Union would want to do that. What its interests are um, for it to say, well, you know, a Europe of individual nation states isn't very good at handling things like migration. We need the EU to come along and do that. That's a, a fairly strong rationale for the for the EU's own existence. So it has interests in promoting this this line. But again, um, these are sort of shrouded. In a rhetoric of best practices. And this is just this is an emerging standard. You've, you've got to comply with this. This isn't about our particular interests. And again, it's these kind of recommendations that sort of make the market for diaspora engagement policies. It gives the, the value to these programs of initiatives that the consultants and experts then package, repackage, market, and sell to states who need uh, them for one reason or another or who think they need them. And the effect of this is that states seeking to join the EU then work hard to demonstrate that they're complying with these norms around migration management, including how to engage the diaspora. For example, the formal explanation of the existence of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina's diaspora institution is that Croatia is going to join the EU, and as a result they're going to have a a border with the EU and therefore greater responsibility, This Bosnia will have greater responsibility for controlling migration. And so they've got to implement European standards on migration management, and they expect that that will facilitate their eventual accession to the EU. So on the surface, this activity is being framed as compliance with EU standards. But again, things aren't always as they seem. The justification for the policy, as I said earlier, uh, is based on... You know models and best practices. It's often quite unrelated to the actual content of the policy, for example, in the Balkans. These EU compliance efforts have a real geopolitical subtext. One key example is Hungary, which, uh, of course, when it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, had controlled much of the Carpathian Basin in Eastern Europe and had to give the, uh, much of this territory away as part of the Treaty of Trianon in 1920, which Hungarian nationalists had never quite gotten over And so when they joined the EU, they established what was called a status law, uh, which granted labour market access and various pseudo-citizenship rights to Hungarian minorities who were living uh, in the former Austro-Hungarian territories that were now part of Romania, Slovakia, and Croatia. And of course, the nationalists in these other states howled with rage that this was Just the kind of revanchist attempt to regain the territories of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and just the kind of thing, kind of ethnic nationalism that the EU was set up to guard against. To which Hungary replies, even after politicians have been saying this sort of thing, oh no, we're just complying to EU standards. Um, Another example, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, a minister from a country in the Balkans who asked not to be named, she basically says, that on the surface of it, they're following the EU guidelines, but our neighbours encourage ethnic groups from our country who are living abroad to think of themselves as part of our neighbours' diaspora. And this is, quote unquote, definitely related to the war objective, unquote. They present themselves as our homeland, but these people actually come from our country. They're our diaspora. And so I think these kinds of, this dissemination of best practices in a way, unleashing a sort of human geopolitics where... Uh, states are competing for authority and a sort of a soft sovereignty over uh, populations but not over territory. Sometimes it can be uh, a precursor to territorial ambitions. So this process of global policy shopping has taken place bilaterally through benchmarking loops. It's taken place at the regional level uh, as part of compliance with regional migration management standards. But as I said at the outset, uh, diaspora engagement policies have also been promoted at the global level. Uh, as part of these efforts to build a global migration regime, to fill the missing regime. And here the IOM has taken a particularly central role in promoting standards, for example, publishing training manuals for states, teaching them how they should engage the diaspora, Uh, convening conferences like the Diaspora Ministerial Conference where senior uh, diaspora officials from all around the world were brought together in Geneva in 2013. And so, as a result of their efforts, there are now a whole lot of states who explicitly cite IOM as a driving force behind their establishment of diaspora institutions. Uh, you know, Burundi's uh, diaspora directorate says, you know, it was financed by IOM. Uh, Georgia's state minister for the diaspora um, told us that IOM had greatly contributed to designing its diaspora policy. Togo's UN ambassador says, They're developing their diaspora engagement plans in sync with IOM, so IOM is effectively telling them to do this. Even more intriguingly than these states uh, jumping on the bandwagon is another state, Russia, which has also jumped on the bandwagon in a big way at IOM's uh, diaspora ministerial conference that I mentioned in 2013. Their main delegate says, the system of cooperation with compatriots established in Russia was formed on the basis of studying the positive experiences of other countries working with their foreign diasporas. At present, we can say that we have the possibility to share our own experience, which we believe can be helpful to others. We care about every compatriot, and are the proud leaders of the Russian communities. We are proud of the leaders of the Russian communities abroad. The Russian Federation will continue to protect the rights and legitimate interests of compatriots. Everybody claps and smiles, but when the Russian Foreign Ministry. Issues an almost identical statement a few months later as justification for annexing Crimea. Uh, Everyone's surprised and outraged. Uh, I think it's a really uh, interesting example and concerning example of bad practices, taking the guise of good practices. And I think this kind of example should prompt us to rethink the whole decentralized state-led approach to evolving a global migration regime where we share best practices. So, finally some concluding thoughts. Efforts to evolve a global migration regime have encouraged a process of global policy shopping, where states trade and exchange models and best practices of managing migration, including engaging diasporas. This has taken place bilaterally through benchmarking loops, it's taken part, uh, taking place regionally through regional organisations, and it's taken place globally through organisations like the IOM and the Global Forum on Migration and Development. Global policy shopping has been brokered by an industry of consultants and policy experts who assemble and package, repackage, market and sell policy recommendations to buyer states. I'm sure we can all think of examples of how this has happened in other policy realms. For example, uh, we're seeing the resurrection of temporary labour migration programmes. Some people would say guest worker programmes under the rhetoric of promoting circular migration. And um, we could legitimately question whether these are really best practices or whether they're actually Um, bad practices in disguise. Um, So this process of global policy shopping sometimes led to a real decoupling between the justification and the rationale for policy and the actual content of policies that are implemented. Uh, And it's led to the dissemination of bad practices sometimes. This matters, I think, for one reason. Um, It's because this decentralised process of sharing best practices has been an important underpinning of the lead up to the formation of the global compacts um, to other processes that are related, like the uh, closer relationship between the IOM and the United Nations. And so we need to look at how uh, those kind of norms and formation have entered what's eventually going to end up in the compacts. I think we have to ask whether we should be setting, for example, uh, some guiding principles around how states... uh, origin states should be able to relate to their people abroad to avoid these kinds of bad practices happening. And it might be uh, time to ask how those kind of principles might find their way into the global compacts. I'll finish there. Thanks a lot.